To have a civil war, in fact pretty much any war, you need two sides. And England, in 1451, had only one side. The good ship, Henry VI. The Queen, the leading councillors, and near enough every nobleman, except the Duke of York, supported the King. Not only did they support the King, but they would not have seen the events up to 1451 as any sort of challenge to the King. They certainly didn't entertain even the slightest prospect of Henry being overthrown. And even York had no intention of seizing the throne. So, there was only one side. But why bother to mention that? Well, the reason is that for centuries, the Wars of the Roses have been presented, and still are by some folk, as the end product of events which took place in 1399, when, you'll recall, the House of Lancaster, in the person of Henry IV, usurped the throne from the rightful King Richard II. In order for this version of history to make sense, there already had to be two sides long before 1451, York and Lancaster, two rival houses, as they are often referred to, struggling to win or keep the throne, and chipping away at each other for 50 years or so until it all escalated into violent warfare in 1455 at the Battle of St Albans. And after that, we are told, the two warring houses could not be reconciled until 1485 when Henry Tudor happened along. The trouble is, not much of that is actually true. It's the Tudor view of what happened, and the reality was rather different. To start with, you have to put out of your mind forever the idea that Richard Duke of York was trying to take Henry's throne. Because at no point before 1460 did he try to do so. York was certainly acutely aware of his claim to the throne, but his intention was to succeed Henry, not depose him. And York was not the only one interested, because as long as Henry was childless, every nobleman wanted to understand who might succeed him. When the monarchy hung by a single thread, it was only common sense to know what would happen if it snapped. Last time, I left Richard, Duke of York in 1451, festering away in the political wilderness with his influence and resources at an all-time low. The story of the 1450s is the story of York's return to government and, crucially, the beginnings of some serious noble support to restore him to prominence. The beginnings, if you like, of a situation in England where there might be two sides rather than one. So what was York up to during the winter of 1451-2? Well, York was busy making plans to force his way back into the political arena. In his view, Somerset had to be stopped, both for his own future and for that of the kingdom he expected to inherit. Excluded from political office and power, the only avenue open to him was to use the threat of force. York's plan had two elements to it. Firstly, 
he waged a propaganda campaign across the country highlighting the government's already well-listed failings, uncontrolled corruption, setbacks in the French war and enormous debts. Thus, to the commons of England, York presented himself as the saviour of the kingdom, the man who would rid England of the incompetent Somerset and give good and honest counsel to his sovereign lord, King Henry VI. The second part of York's strategy was to raise an army to give some substance and muscle to his cause. He reckoned that if he went to London on a wave of popular support and with an army at his back, then he could not be ignored by the king. None of this came cheap, but York hoped that when he was back in favour, the crown would pay back the debts he was owed. He was gambling all, as they say, on a single throw of the dice. During this period, the influence of Queen Margaret over crown policy grew significantly. Her perspective was that she must work to defend her husband's position, a husband who had already shown that he was incapable of managing his most powerful subjects. The Queen saw York as a threat to her husband's authority. She had not given up hope of a son and saw it as imperative not to hand the initiative to York. With the support of the Duke of Somerset, who, like York, had a personal interest in the future of the kingdom, she ensured that Henry raised an army to counter any threat from York. So, when in February 1452, York brought his army to South London, the king's army was soon camped nearby. Thousands of men had taken up arms, so here, as early as 1452, was the means of civil war, a powerful subject challenging his sovereign with an army at his back. So why then did war not break out in 1452? York expected that his show of force would allow him to arrest Somerset and be restored to the King's Council. What he got instead was a stalemate, and a stalemate where the King held all the advantages. Not for the first time, and certainly not for the last, York had miscalculated badly. The popular support he envisaged did not materialise, and, more importantly, Neither did noble support, and that was vital. Only one or two nobles supported York. The rest, the overwhelming majority, remained steadfastly loyal to the king. It was not that the nobles were hostile to York, or necessarily supported Somerset. They just believed that York was wrong to make a public show of force against the king. Amongst those on the King's Council, who tried to negotiate a settlement, were the Earls of Salisbury and Warwick, a father and son who led the powerful northern Neville family. They were kinsmen of York, and certainly not his enemies. But with almost all the peers against him, York was forced to accept negotiation or be destroyed. He demanded the arrest of Somerset, and this was agreed. York therefore disbanded his army on the strength of that promise. 
However, it was not Somerset, but York who was arrested and imprisoned. Though his imprisonment lasted only 10 days or so, York was forced to make a public oath of loyalty at St Paul's. One could argue that York got off lightly. After all, he had taken up arms against his king and had thus committed high treason. Noblemen had been executed for less in the past. Nevertheless, York felt, indeed he was, humiliated. Not only that, but the Duke of Somerset remained in the ascendant at court along with the Queen. Somerset, thinking he was now impregnable, proceeded to rub York's nose in it by prosecuting some of his retainers at Ludlow, in the very heart of York's power base. York, his political career in tatters, withdrew once more and cursed his ill fortune. He could only look on in October 1452, as England's fortunes in the French War improved, when the hero, John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, began to roll back French control of Bordeaux. Despite York's absence, it seemed the war was actually going better. Then, in the late spring of 1453, came the stunning news that the Queen was pregnant at last. At that moment in time, Richard Duke of York was finished, and what we know as the Wars of the Roses should never have happened. But fate was not finished with York, for in the summer of 1453, the entire political landscape of England would change, and he would have his chance once again. <laughs>